Good morning, everybody. Um, Don, can you hear me? No, you can. Yeah, okay. Jeffrey? A little bit? Just a little bit. Okay. I'll try to speak louder. If, if I go low, will you just read? Don't be shy. Since I'm up here and speaking on behalf of us all, I just want to um, just note what happened yesterday. <laughs> we created two zendos, um, a kitchen, <clears throat> a place to practice. So. Uh, yesterday was an incredible amount of effort, a beautiful, wholehearted energy, some confusion and chaos, <laughs> some frozenness at times, um, some problems, some messiness. And uh, we walk in this morning and there's this a beautifully settled space that we created. Uh, Last time when I talked, I talked about miracles. That feels like a little, it feels like one of those great miracles. And um, energetically now we can begin to... um, infuse this space with our uh, settled bodies and minds and our intention. So this morning, um, I realized I I wanted to continue to talk about um, Nanquan's cat. So Kosin brought up this uh, teaching story um, and just uh, for me as well, really um, inspired me, uh, his perspective on it and, and what unfolded in the conversation. So I wanted to continue the conversation because it kept stirring me up. And um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that. So I kept thinking um, about the situation about these monks and who were these monks and I um, read something briefly this morning from Norman Fisher, who said um, in these halls at this time in, in the Chinese monasteries, the, the, two, the two halls were divided, and maybe you mentioned this, Kosin, yesterday, um, between the practicing monks, the monks in the, in the monastery practicing, and the monks that were doing um, all of the kind of work, the working monks. So I kept thinking, you know, why, what, what, I wonder what was going on with the cat. <laughs> I started to just play, you know, I was imagining maybe that the working monks, the, the, the kitchen perhaps got these cats so, um, so that they could take care of the mice in the kitchen, so to keep the kitchen clean. And then maybe the, 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 the monastery monk, the monks in the practice hall in the temple is like, why are these, these cats are roaming into the zendo? <laughs> you know, like this is a problem. Kind of like the, 
the dogs, you know, coming into the zendo. Then I thought, well, maybe, maybe the cats were actually some kind of beloved pet of one of the teachers, who's <laughs> a bit indulgent, and uh, and wanting the wanting the the um, cat in the temple, and the and the um, and the kitchen monks were upset because the cat was jumping all over their food. So. Anyway, as my mind wandered off in imagination, I just was wondering why this, why this conflict. And um, as Kosum was mentioning yesterday, this is um, what kind of views were they holding that brought them to this moment where um, they could not respond when the cat's life was threatened. And then I also wondered, was there something in the collective body of those monks that supported this frozenness? Was there some kind of um, collective collusion or um, kind of practice that was misunderstood and misguided that they all collectively um, decided to disassociate from or, 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 or not allow their own natural responsiveness of their heart to take over and and respond. And I I feel somehow, I I feel very um, connected to these monks. You know, when, when, and again, this is taking a liberty, you know, these monks, they they were described as frozen. And as I mentioned yesterday and, and um, being a trauma therapist, I, I hear the word frozen and I just think in very particular terms that um, something, that fluidity that Kosin was talking about, how do we stay fluid? Um, that when we are, we are not, um, when we are released from a sense of self, there is, um, there's movement, there's fluidity, there's responsiveness. And so what kind of creates that, that water to, to ice up and freeze and not be able to, um, to be stuck inside? So uh, frozenness, as many of you know, is an evolutionary response to threat, to a perceived threat. And in extreme distress, we will sh- we will shut down. We will we will um, we will start to kind of freeze up. And if the distress gets too much, we shut down. So there's a, a kind of evolutionary function of this frozenness, and then there's also an existential function to the frozenness. So sometimes we now and, and often, um, we actually almost um, cultivate this in practice that we actually want to begin to touch against the points of the self that we have created um, for reasons that are understandable, but we want to expand our capacity. We want to expand the sense of self, self-responsiveness, a responsiveness from a wider, bigger um, deeper, more loving self. And we are all in a process of this, and at certain times we can be very responsive, and other times we have a very narrow band before we freeze up or before that tightening happens. 
so often in practice, there's a kind of, um, we can see in ourselves and each other, a kind of imposed frozenness, you can say, a kind of digging in or a refusal to go near what feels scary for us or what feels threatening to our identity, um, to our sense of belonging, to our, our, our sense of self. And so what we do, one of the ways that we um, refuse to kind of uh, allow ourselves to respond is we dig in. And one of the first things we do is we kind of um, cut off all the signals from our body, you know, that is, that is starting to get evoked in this situation of the, 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 the deep view of self so we might tighten, we might cut off our breath, we might avert our eyes, we might withdraw from the, from the stimulus, the other person or the situation that is evoking this kind of threat. We also um, might dominate the body. We might start to really, that's, well, that is a form of domination, that is a form of violence. And then uh, what we also do is we sometimes will, by this withdrawal and this frozenness relationally, we won't allow ourselves to be affected by others. Or we won't acknowledge how we are being affected by others and we withdraw from a situation or from a relationship or from the sangha ourselves, the sangha. So when we do that, we also are, in a way, most prim- primarily and most importantly, I think, we're cutting off our capacity to begin to work with that suffering, to work with that distress, to work with that fear, to work with those views. We, kind of, we can't get to those deeper views because now we've kind of frozen the body in a kind of response. And then we often... Um, that gets exacerbated by us now also justifying that in very in all sorts of ways and then looping that in and and recreating it and then the last thing i was thinking about when i was thinking about the cat and the monks i was thinking about um you know these collective shadows that part of this frozenness is this um response to, um, a, like I said, a collective collusion. And I think most importantly, um, and this is the, both the, the opportunity and the challenge of, of Sangha is I think we all carry around us or most of us a threat of exile or humiliation or not belonging. So maybe all this was going on with the monks and um, and then and there's also these societal forces. Greg, I think you were saying last night something about the, the historical context of that time. Um, and you said it was a very violent time. And there are many. I don't, could you give the statistic? What was the statistic you had? There was a time when China had one of the largest wars that it's ever had. And um, it's really hard to say what the percentage of the population was 
So maybe these monks came in to seek refuge, but they have the violence of, of, their, of, of what's happened to their families or their communities. You know, maybe when, when he held a knife to that cat, it, it evoked, as we were saying, a, a kind of traumatic response to other deaths. So all that ancestral and societal energy lives in our bodies in a moment of meeting. And so to me, this is a very interesting dilemma because we are, um, we're almost, in a, as a bodhisattva, trying to train our body to let go of self-protection. And this self-protection is not just an intellectual one, but a, but a whole body <laughs> one. And so our sense of self um, penetrates it like a cellular structure, you know, the whole body. So here is this teacher, Nanquan, trying to train folks to be bodhisattvas, to walk into the fire of the world, to be able to navigate chaos and violence and harm and create a communities of harmony and aliveness and creativity and he's got this whole set of monks kind of frozen so part of what we're doing here in sitting and is is training on an energetic level maybe most primarily So um, this is, I, I, I was reading um, Thich Nhat Hanh's book called Friends on the Path, and our practice period is about um, meeting the world as Sangha. So I wanted to read something as, a, as another way of framing this dilemma of this teacher by Thich Nhat Hanh. He said, there are some people who think of leaving the Sangha when they encounter difficulties with other Sangha members. They cannot bear little injustices on them because their hearts are small. To help your heart grow bigger and bigger, understanding and love are necessary. Your heart grows as big as the cosmos. The growth of your heart is infinite. If your heart is like a big river, flowing, fluid, you can receive any amount of dirt. It will not affect you, and you can transform the dirt very easily. Then he goes on to say, if you still suffer, your heart is not big enough. That is the teaching of forbearance and inclusiveness in Buddhism. He says, you don't practice to suppress your suffering, you practice in order for your heart to expand as big as a river. So the question becomes, how do we um, become re-embodied? How do we stay embodied? How do we not disconnect from the information of our bodies, of our minds, and of our hearts in the face of threat? Little tiny threats, like where are we going to put this cushion? <laughs> No, <laughs> disagreeing about that to weigh big threats. And in a way, we practice here with these little threats in order to be able to navigate the, the big ones. 
And we do this with a, with a recognition that underneath that frozenness, underneath those protective strategies, is a natural, good heart. We remember that. We try to live from that. And it's right there, right on the other side of a, a threat. There's a, there's, a, there's a pivot and that opportunity to, to remember. And when we remember, things start moving and flowing again. So I, I wanted to bring in um, a teaching to help um, <laughs> the threat Miley feels from the other dog <laughs> and protecting us. So this week we are sitting in the understanding that Molly, Molly, good girl, good girl. Do you want someone, do you want to hold her? Close <laughs> she is making my point. <laughs> right? It's so easy with Molly to not to just see that's what she's doing. She thinks that she needs to protect us and protect herself with a big old bark. And what do we respond to? A kind of sweetness, mostly. Maybe some of you are annoyed. Kind of gentleness. So I wanted to share this. Um, we're going to be um, offering the Buddha's Enlightenment story on Sunday morning, as we often do. And um, I wanted to bring in a teaching from that story as a way of maybe responding to how to deal with the frozenness. So there's a wonderful book called Stars at Dawn, which is um, the forgotten stories of women in the Buddha's life by uh, Wendy Garling. And Shimi has also been talking about the life of the Buddha. So I really wanted to talk about um, Sujata, who is the character in, in the story, the person in the story who offers um, sweet rice milk to Siddhartha, when he was um, almost at the point of starvation. And um, what I love about this book is it found these kind of little-known translations of these vignettes or stories that offer all these different perspectives on that story of, the, of Siddhartha as he was um, approaching uh, enlightenment. And there's... Um, in this book, she talks about many variations of the relationship between Sujata and Siddhartha. And so there's many different stories to tell about it. But I, one I wanted to tell is that um, in this version, Sujata uh, had um, prayed to local tree spirits to find a husband and, and to be able to have a son. And she said, if I 
if I'm able to receive these wonderful blessings, every year I will make an offering to the tree spirit. And so she did. She, she received these wonderful blessings. And she was getting ready to do her first offering to the tree spirit. And in this story, there is a very elaborate understanding of all the, she took like 500 cows and got the best milk and went through this huge deep process to get just the best kind of milk for this tree spirit. And um, the day before she was about to offer it, uh, she asked her servant, um, Parna, to go to this particular tree that she was going to offer it to that she knew there was a tree spirit and to start to clean and you know, create a, a beautiful little uh, space for this offering. And when um, Parna went to the um, tree, she saw Siddhartha under the tree. Now Siddhartha had been a, a bit of a mess uh, a, couple, a day before. He hadn't eaten. He was at the point of starvation. You could say the Buddha right before he went under the tree, was attached to view. <laughs> he was really attached to this view that he had to um, do kind of a, a, a mortification of the body in order to um, find his wisdom, to find the essence of what he was looking for. And, you know, in, this, in the many stories, they tell very elaborate um, tales of how intensely his asceticism was. You know, first he started eating, I guess, something like a little fruit, and then he went to, um, I don't know, a bean or a pea, and then he went to a sesame seed, and then he wouldn't eat anything. And, you know, and in these stories, we're often hearing that he's alone in this process. But in these other stories that, that come up, you know, there is the understanding that he's actually being watched over all the time by these gods and goddesses. And that even his, the Buddha's father has these kind of um, people checking in on him and, and seeing how he's doing. So he's really actually not alone at all. He's surrounded by these um, supports. And he's also... Um, very deeply, deeply disciplined and connected to letting go of self-view. And this is his way he thinks he needs to do it. So the um, goddesses start to get nervous. The gods start to get nervous that he's gone too far, that he's about to die. So as you know, Buddha's mother died when um, he was born. And in one version, the goddess and gods uh, go to Maya and ask Maya to please come back and, and plead with his son to eat something. Um, and she, and um, she does. And, and all the God, there's all these different interventions and Siddhartha was refusing. <laughs> he wouldn't do it. He was very attached to his view. And he was very committed at the same time to um, create to ending suffering for himself and everyone. So what happened was, he uh, two things woke him up from this. One was a memory of him sitting under a tree, as Jimio had been talking about in the in the class, 
remembering ease, remembering relaxing, remembering just the spirit of nothing extra, just trusting the body as, as he did as a little boy. So you can say that was part of him maybe waking up to embodiment again. He remembered when he was embodied in a non-problematic way. And then the other thing was a sensory kind of waking up through this lute. He heard the three women playing a lute, and he woke up and made a connection and had an insight about strings not being too tight or too loose. So he began to wake up and nourish himself, and then he sat underneath this tree. And um, so some versions have Sujata, the one who ends his fast, and then others have Sujata as the one who helps support him as he goes deep into enlightenment. So the, really the point I want to make about all this is every position is understandable here. It's understandable um, the teacher's deep, full-body commitment to wanting to wake his students up. He loves them. He cares about them. He sees how they're holding to views, and he's maybe desperate, doesn't know what else to do. It's so understandable about these monks not fully realize that in a moment of life and death, in a moment where the need to respond to harm is so strong, they freeze up. It's so understandable and admirable and an inspiration for us to see the Buddha's Siddhartha's commitment to waking up and the kind of discipline he is engaging in. And it's so important and understandable and necessary medicine to offer care and nourishment and gentleness for the suffering of our bodies, for the suffering of Siddhartha's body, and to say, look, you can't do it this way. You can't cut off receiving nourishment and care and generosity. And you're not alone in this. Siddhartha's path is not an individual path. It's a path, and all of our paths of recognizing that we're in this um, and being supported by all kinds of beings. And that it's almost, you could say, our job, our, our awakening is to allow that care in to receive the sweet milk, rice milk. Because if we don't, and we don't care and respect and honor our bodies, we become disembodied. That's how we cause harm. We don't have the capacity, the relaxedness, the energy, the, um, the love that's deep enough to be able to be strong enough to respond to the suffering of the world. 
And so that's the kind of practice of Sangha. Noticing the forms of withdrawal and and refusing to let in. Patience with that, understanding with that, and yet insistence, you know. And as Kosin and I were talking about this story yesterday, we said, you know, these are not new monks. You know, I don't think, you know, these were probably very senior, very experienced monks that, you know, Suzuki Roshi says when you're, you know, in the beginning you have a very wide path, and then as you are practicing a long time, you know, we narrow the path, and the, the means get a little bit more manjushri. So here, he, maybe he's invested in these monks for many, many years. It's like, oh my God, I got to do something here, you know, something drastic. And then the interesting thing is that what did the Buddha do in response after his enlightenment? He didn't um, suggest an individual path. He didn't suggest an ascetic path. He suggested a path of sangha. He created community. He remembered and recognized and re-remembered that this is the way we do it. We can't do it alone. And as Thich Nhat Hanh said, you know, without a community, we're weak. The Buddha was weak when he refused to take in... um, all of the nourishment that was being offered him in this in this um, great intention of his. Thich Nhat Hanh says we need the Sangha to be by our side when we're in pain. We don't maybe even recognize that we're in pain. And we are still refusing to hear how much we're all in pain and how much the world is in pain. And when we can begin to hear the pain that is being expressed through our bodies, we begin to melt, we begin to mourn and grieve that which created that pain. And we grieve, we're flowing again. And I I really love this idea of this middle way between um, gentleness and discipline. And I think it's a a lifelong kind of... um, koan for all of us and in each particular moment I think that Eno says can you find the middle way between gentleness and discipline and I somehow that I always feel somewhat a little funny about that phrasing because I don't it feels as if they're two separate things and in a way really um the way we could maybe say it is gentle discipline or a disciplined gentleness. You know, because on the other side, as we take care of ourselves and offer us sweet rice milk and relax and be gentle, we also, we have to be disciplined in our gentleness or else it kind of turns into maybe 
over caring and not allowing people to just um, be who they are or we can not trust our own capacity to be able to bear and be with suffering without moving around so much. So, you know, in a way, the gentleness or the generosity, um, the relaxing is what allows, I believe, um, a move towards no self or non-self or that realization um, that the Buddha was seeking. You know, it's both ways. When we let go of self, we naturally find ourselves inspired to support others, to be with others. So every little release from a kind of self-clinging or tightness, we are available now to ourselves and to other people. And then it goes the other way. So yesterday morning, we just, you know, we started off almost in a kind of um, request to be generous. <laughs> we didn't sit off, sit like kind of settling into our own minds and bodies. We're like, here we are, we're at the space. Let's be generous to this space. Let's be generous to what needs to happen. And then as we let ourselves flow in the generosity of activity, full activity, there's a release of self. We find ourselves just flowing with everyone else, moving up and down the stairs, pulling out dried flowers and mopping floors. I just love the um, creative tension of community. You know, this morning, Ian came to me, and very respectfully, he said, you know, would it be possible to have those two tables downstairs and to do the, do the food downstairs? And um, my first thought was, no. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe energetically I expressed that no, but then I relaxed. You know, I was like, okay, Laura, tell me about this. You know, and he had very good reasons. It'd be quiet, you know, we're in service, it'll be quieter. It's, you know, it'd be maybe nice, people be eating down there. And I thought, oh, that might be nice. Okay. So let me ask the Tenzo. Then I went in and I found Don. I said, Don, what do you think about that? And he was very open. Then he mentioned, well, you know, then the cleanup. What about the cleanup? And now everybody has to bring the things up. And so then I was back to, I, I really don't know. You know, brought it back to Ian. So Ian was just the beautiful bodhisattva he is. He said, okay, let's try it this way. Let's um, try today in the space, you know, during the service, the zendo, this is really the two halls coming together, the zendo and the kitchen together in one room. Let's see how it goes today. And I said, okay, could you please 
ask Kiku to just, you know, remind everybody that we're in service as we're doing it and see if we can actually do this together, that the zendo and the kitchen, which we've done always at Zen Center, are together linked, not separate. And then we'll see. And if it doesn't work out so well, maybe tomorrow we'll try something else. And um, it sounds like a silly little thing, but it's um, the spirit of how we try to do things here. So, so this week we are back together in person. And I think for me, what I'm experiencing right now is it, it doesn't really matter there is both probably in all of us a bit of a protectiveness, a hesitancy, a caution, a wondering, um, a settling into a strange new space with you know, all kinds of noises and conditions that our, that our nervous system will be responding to all week. And then there is the joy of our hearts being together and trusting that um, tremendous capacity we each have and that we've built together and we know in our bodies that will allow us to relax and to trust each other and to compromise and figure it out. And we rest in the incredible generosity of, of, of everybody that worked hard to just even get us to this moment. And if we can keep remembering that and relaxing that, and as Thich Nhat Hanh said, just keep letting our hearts lead. We can take in all the nourishment that's being offered here from so many directions. Is it perfect? No. <laughs> is it messy? Yes, at times. Is it? Is it? Is it triggering? Yes. Do we have compassion and patience with the part of us that tenses against this or wants to leave? Yes. And can we just um, just appreciate the kind of exquisite beauty of being together and <laughs> with Molly on the and then the last thing I'll, I'll say is, you know, um, looking at all my little clocks, the older I get, I, I feel like life gets really simple. It's like um, all this attaining and clarifying and working hard and it's really all it is is just to really appreciate that we're here together and to enjoy what's simple and beautiful and a blessing and I, I say this as I'm looking down at this cloth which is I forgot my suture cloth so um, Kristen has this little cloth she carries around. It's very sweet. <laughs> it's like a, oh, I didn't even notice. It's like a little kid with these little animals all around, chickens and goats. And um, it was given to her 
um, by the people at hospice when she was dying a couple of months ago, right? When your mom was dying, yes. So this is the clock. And I hope we don't have to, um, I hope we can listen to all of the beings that are dying with, um, without shutting down. Because we actually need the joy and we need the connection and we need the simple pleasures and we need the beauty. We need to keep offering that to ourselves. And that will allow us to have the strength to respond to death, to to loss, to um, destruction. So I would ask for all of you to just try out this, what this looks like and keep responding and returning to um, a disciplined gentleness, a gentle discipline, and care for yourselves and each other for the next few days. So. I have this really bizarre thing that just keeps coming up in my head. No, and no cats were killed in the... <laughs> <laughs> In the, in the explication of this teaching. <laughs> I don't think we need to um, be aggressive to ourselves or anybody else in order to wake up. I really don't think that helps or works in any way whatsoever. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.